Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Brian Berlin. And at one point he goes and buys chicken wings and offers me some chicken wings. And I'm like, man, he knows the way to my heart. <laughs> that and more. But first, don't forget to check out the Risk shop at risk-show.com shop. You can find the Risk book, Risk face masks, phone cases, hats, shirts, mugs, totes, and more at risk-show.com shop. And we are so thrilled that businesses are starting to hire us again for storytelling for business workshops at thestorystudio.org. Having your staff learn how to communicate more humanly, more movingly with one another while also learning about one another, it's enormously beneficial. Visit us at thestorystudio.org. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now, imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Orgone, behind me now. We're calling this week's episode Long Shots. One thing I wanted to remind you guys about is that we are once again seeking anecdotes from you guys. Short stories, around about three and a half minutes, maybe four. Do a little brainstorm. I mean, you could pause this episode right now and try to think, hmm, what's something that's happened in the past few months? Just one little incident, one little incident that maybe upset you or inspired you or filled you with compassion, a little moment of embarrassment, a moment that you broke out laughing, some little thing that happened that scared you or that just was really unexpected. A moment that made you think, wait till I tell my friend about this. Check out the submissions page at risk-show.com slash submissions for tips on how to pitch us. You can pitch to pitches at risk-show.com. And if you need any advice about it all, you can just write to me directly at kevin at risk-show.com. And if you ever want to workshop a story with me, if you think, "Ah, I'm not sure I'm ready, this isn't ready for prime time, but... Wouldn't it be helpful to have Kevin helping me start to put a story together? Just find me at kevinallison.com. 
Let's jump into the stories. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Kelly Dunham. Ke- Kelly told a legendary story on the podcast years ago, so it's really wonderful to have her back on the show. But before that, we're going to hear from Burke Hefner, another person who told a legendary story on the show a few years ago. And he was on one of our very first live streams, so it's fun to listen back to that now. This was uh, done with music and sound design by John LaSala. Here is Burke Hefner with a story we call Ankle Deep. All right. Uh, I'm uh, yeah. I'm going to tell a story that's both a film story and an Alaska story. Rarely the twain shall meet. Most of my jobs are in New York City now, but uh, but my first job in film was actually as a camera operator in Anchorage, Alaska. My show it was basically an, a weekly infomercial, and my boss was like he was just like a super like run of the mill bro guy, which was fine, but it was just he was just the exact opposite of who I was at the time. He was like good-looking, 30s. He wore like you know, a blazer and a button-up collared shirt, which at the time seemed inconceivable to me. He was like, you know, talked about sports a lot. And he had a knack for like just the most uncomfortable conversations. Like our day would normally start, I'd show up the office, which was also his home, and I'd be ready to go with work. And he'd like still be in a bathrobe with a cup of coffee. And I think the first real conversation that we had after getting hired opened with some just gem. It was like, so, uh, do you like big boobs? You know, I was young. I was like barely 20. I was introverted. I was raised by a feminist. And I was just, I was already so bad at holding conversations with strangers that like the last conversation I wanted to have, regardless of what I thought of boobs, was with like my half-naked new boss in his kitchen. (laughs) <laughs> it was it was just always that awkward. But the job was really important to me. The job meant a lot to me for two reasons. One, my dream was to go to New York City and make movies. And this was a step closer to that. You know, it was airing somewhere. And, you know, I was getting to use real camera equipment. I had a big camera on my shoulder. And the other reason that the job was so important to me is that, is that I was broke. I was like dead broke at the time. I had just dropped out of film school in New York, and I'd come back to Alaska. I had to sell my, like, base and my amp to get the gas money to get up there. So I was just hurting for money. So I I needed it all. So if I had to, like, you know, limp my way through, like, blondes versus brunettes, or, like, what kind of chicks do you like to bang? You know, like, suffering through those conversations was still, still good enough. It still was worth it to me. There were, there were other watch out signs that I didn't quite pick up on. Like sometimes like you'd mention his name in public and someone would stop and go, wait, wait a minute. Is he here? He owes me money. For real. That happened. That was a real thing that happened. But nonetheless, I did. I learned a lot from the job and I learned a lot about camera angles and framing stuff and positions. And during all of that learning, I, I never got paid. I would turn in my time card 
And then, you know, like he'd have to like forward it to his partner and then his business partner was going to look at it. And like a big thing was coming in next week. And like once that cleared, then they were going to cut checks for everyone and so blah, 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 blah. I never got paid. And I was afraid to quit because I'd seen how many people he owed. And I knew that if he didn't need me, that I would never be able to get that money. There was also some ego involved in it because, you know, I was I was a cameraman. I was like starting to do the thing that I was meant to do. And I knew full well that like my next job was going to be pizza guy. So I let him string me along. Eventually, when it became clear that he was just never going to pay me, like that's exactly what happened. I became the pizza guy. But I, I never let go of that job. Like I look, couldn't let go of the idea of the money. I couldn't let go of the idea of like just being a camera person. And it occurred to me at some point that like the camera and the tripod he used, those things to put together were worth almost exactly what he owed me. I knew that if I had that camera, I would be out making movies, man. I'd be like telling stories. I'd be getting people to laugh or shiver or, you know, and I'd be sharing it with my other film buddies and we'd all be like launching our careers. We'd be making art and we'd be living it. And, and instead he's got this camera and he's, He's using this camera to con more people out of money every day. And so I decided to like take the lead role and, and do the heroic thing and actually do something about it. I decided to steal the camera. I came up with a really good plan. I thought it out a lot based probably mostly on movies because I'd definitely never done anything like that. You know, I got a disguise. I had, like, a friend to act as my, like, driver and scout. And the part I planned out the most is I was going to be in and out so quick because I already knew where the camera was. I knew where the tripod is, and I knew how to get out. There's, like, no reason I couldn't be in and out of that house in, like, under two minutes. So even if something came up, like someone sees something funny or whatever, like, you call the cops, they're going to be so far gone behind the to get there. So I bought a flannel. I bought a baseball cap with a, a chainsaw advertisement on it. And I bought a brown wig. And I cut the bangs off of the brown wig. I put the wig on, the baseball cap over it, and the flannel on it. And I, I didn't look anything like myself, but I looked a whole lot like just any regular dude with a mullet in Anchorage, Alaska. I picked a day that I knew he was going to be working way on the edge of town. We drove up. We didn't park in front of the house. We parked around the corner just out of sight where Mark could just barely see me. So no one could see the car and the robbery in the same spot, so they wouldn't be able to know that we were together. And we worked out a signal so that if he saw anything suspicious when I came out of the door, he'd give me the signal and I'd know to run instead of heading towards the car so he wouldn't be implicated. I walked down the driveway, went underneath the awning. I knocked on the door really loud, and when no one answered... I put on a pair of gloves from the duffel bag I brought. I lifted up the mat, I took the key out, I unlocked the door, and I walked in. And from that moment, everything went just to shit. The whole house was in boxes. Everything in the entire house was in unmarked cardboard boxes because my boss was getting ready to skip town. Which, it made perfect sense. I mean, he owed everyone money. He'd had such a bad falling out with his partner that his partner had had to get receipts 
and a police escort. And he had to show up with the cops to have the cops escort the equipment that he had bought off of the property. Like, that's how bad things had gotten. So it made sense that he was leaving, but it really threw a wrench in my in-and-out quick plan because I couldn't find anything. I just started I started in the room where the camera was supposed to be and the tripod was supposed to be, and I just start opening up boxes, and I don't recognize anything. It's all mixed with, like, household objects. Suddenly, I'm just, like, going from room to room to room, opening boxes, opening boxes, opening boxes. Eventually, I do find the camera, but I haven't found the tripod yet, and I'm, like, really fixated on getting both of these things, and I've run out of rooms upstairs. I probably looked like real pro when I was outside putting on those gloves, but now that I'm in the house and things are not working, I have so much adrenaline like soaking through my body that my hands are starting to shake, which makes opening all of these random boxes like really difficult. And like, never mind my own plan. I'm like fucking up the basics of like things you never do even in a horror film, right? Like number one, like never walk backwards saying, hello, hello. Number two, never go into the fucking basement. And number three, never enter a room with the lights off. But I'd gone through the entire upstairs and I can't find the light switch because I've never been to the basement before. So I am now stumbling in the dark through a strange basement over a bunch of boxes and objects that I don't recognize. Eventually, I get to a room, and on the other side of the room, I see a case that looks about the right size for a tripod. And I trip my way to the case, and I grab the latches. And uh, you know those, like, the trick toy you get? The can of snakes that, like, says peanuts on the outside, and you shake it, and it sounds like peanuts. But when you open it up, I undo the latches, and the box spills forward, and a fucking tidal wave of giant, giant veiny cocks spills out everywhere. And with the giant veiny cocks, there's also several of the glass vacuum tube, uh, like the penis pumps to make your dick bigger thing. And all of these pages, like physically torn out of magazines, of these like super beefcake muscle dudes, like steroid beefcake boys holding their dicks. You know, in like the mystery movie, when they go into the flashback sequence for like everyone who's not smart enough to figure out what's going on so you can like know who done it? Time slows down, I'm jumping backwards, and my brain just starts boom, 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 stepping back through every conversation that I've ever had with this guy. Like going all the way back to the very first conversation. Do you like big boobs? It was such an awkward and uncomfortable conversation for me, but now I'm watching it from above with my little, like, bird's-eye view, and I'm rethinking the way that he was saying it and, like, how terrible his, like, delivery was, and, like, all of his references to women are basically just peeled from, like, a beer poster girl. And I realized, like, oh, my God, I don't want to have this conversation, and he doesn't want to have this conversation. We're, like... Two people stuck in a room having a conversation that neither of us are confident enough to not have. 
And you're just like, my brain is like, woof, woof, woof. And then I'm rethinking all of these events. I think back to like the story told when his uh, partner had come to recollect the gear. That one of the things they'd seized was a computer. And he was like, oh, yeah, you know, like she opened up the computer. And you know, like when the guys come over and you're like having beers and you're like, downloading stupid pictures from the internet it's like 56k it probably took four hours you know but it's like yeah you know she found a bunch of pictures like saying i'm a pervert now and i don't know if i'm gonna have to like sue her for like you know defacing my character or something but and i was like oh yeah like i'm rethinking i'm like oh well i i know what kind of picture she found and i bet she was surprised because this is anchorage alaska a long time ago and honestly probably even still today Anchorage, Alaska is not the kind of place where when the guys from work ask you what kind of chick you like to bang, that your answer is going to be like, what I really like is just a big, fat cock. (laughs) All of this zips away. The flashback ends because there's a sound of gravel moving in the driveway. Roughly the amount of noise that, say, a pickup truck would make when it's returning home from work. I freeze. And the sound actually gets louder, and I realize it's not a pickup truck. It's like several cop cars, and they're moving fast, and it's loud because they're flying down the driveway because, no doubt, someone fucking called the cops because some dumbass has been routing through someone's house where they don't live for, like, ever. They're moving so quickly and it's getting so loud that the objects on the tables around me are starting to shake. That's how loud it's getting. It's it's not the cops. While I'm standing ankle deep in dildos with a mullet in the dark in a basement that is not mine, Anchorage, Alaska is hit by an earthquake. It was unbelievably loud, it was short, and it was not very damaging. But when it finally settles out, my body has found somewhere more adrenaline to dump into my system, and it's so much that I can hear my heartbeat throbbing in my ear, like over the subsiding earthquake. I'm fumbling, trying to close the case of dildos, and the other half of my brain is trying to figure out where the tripod could be if it's not in here, and then like, Finally, my brain catches up with the circumstances and it like collects all the loose ends and like sends out a new directive. And the new directive is, Burke, get out. And I leave the case, dildos unclosed. I give up on the tripod. I run upstairs. I go to the front door. I put the key back underneath the mat. I open the window by the door so that he'll think someone broke in through the window. They won't know there was someone who knew where the key was. I walk outside, I look for Mark. Mark doesn't give me the signal, no one's on to us. I jump into the car, I duck down while we drive out of the neighborhood. Halfway across town, we stop in an alley behind a gas station. I take off the disguise, I throw the disguise in the dumpster, and we continue on to the post office. Within 20 minutes of the robbery, the camera's been put into a box with no return address and mailed to New York City. I'm obviously super nervous over the next couple of weeks, but I never hear from my boss. I never hear from the cops. And a month later, I fly back to New York City. 
the camera that I had stolen was an SVHS camera, big shoulder mount camera. The S stands for super. The VHS stands for, I don't know, but VHS has not been super since maybe somewhere in the early 80s when it was competing with vinyl. I don't know when VHS was ever super, but it was like the top of the line prosumer model at the time. But things were evolving. It's like the late 90s and new things were happening. From the time that I mailed that box to the time that I land in New York City, something amazing happened in the industry. Mini DV. That's mini digital video. Digital, man, not analog. Digital. It was smaller, cheaper, and the image quality was vastly superior to anything that preceded it. So much so that when I actually opened that unmarked box, the contents inside are worth nothing. I have broken into someone's house. I have committed a felony. I've survived a dildo avalanche in the middle of an earthquake. And all I've gotten from it is a story that I'm afraid to tell for the next seven years, a little bit of understanding, and a fucking brick, a doorstop, like a paperweight. It is useless. You know, I kind of cast myself in this story like I'd made myself the hero, and, and I was. But what I didn't understand is that it wasn't the movie that I thought it was. It was not a Marvel superhero movie. It was not like a thriller. It wasn't like Hollywood blockbuster. It was like some obscure French film where the plot's really convoluted and the bad guy never gets arrested. It was like one of those stories where there's not really a protagonist and no one's really the antagonist. And we're all just sort of like foiled anti-heroes. And the things that you thought were valuable aren't. And the things that you thought you knew, you don't. partner, Heather, 
when she was performing burlesque and I was performing comedy at a queer conference held in the Newark Airport Ramada Inn. I was walking through the lobby and I tripped over my own feet and then I dropped all my handouts for the Subverting the Rigid Gender Binary Workshop. <laughs> uh, she picked them up and handed them to me to help me and then she looked at my name tag uh, and what I had written under the name. Uh, Kinky Polly Switch looking for you. She looked at me, I said, yeah, and she said, well, that's such a coincidence, because I'm looking for you, too. Uh, so, that night, we went to the play party and had what my best friend called the scene heard round the world, and I guess that's true if uh, you're talking about our little teeny tiny queer world. And most of it was an endorphin blur, but uh, the thing that I can tell you is that she poked me many, many, many times with sterile needles in a way that made me feel like I would follow her anywhere. Uh, and even if you're not kinky, you can understand that, right? That moment in a relationship where you're like, oh, fuck, I'm done for. So uh, we went back to her hotel room for a little more private time, and she kicked me out after a while. She said she had to get her burlesque, her beauty sleep. And I said, you know, I thought I was being flirtatious. I was like, well, I'd like to see if burlesque queens wake up with glitter on their lips. And she said, mm, maybe someday, if you're lucky and you stick around, you'll find out. So she returned to San Francisco and I returned to Philadelphia where I was living and I would go out weekends and be her boy. We had a lovely time. I really did stick around. Uh, and we had monthly visits and we talked on the phone and AOL is instant messenger. And we built a relationship that way with no real sense of urgency. Now, the first weekend uh, that we had spent together, Heather told me that she had a history of cancer, but it sounded just like that, like just the history. But six months into our relationship, the ovarian cancer that had been in remission returned, and Heather got really sick. Bit by bit at first, and then all at once. Um, and when it became clear, when the doctor said that she wasn't going to survive it, we started looking for other alternatives, you know, and we looked into, like, acupuncture and cannabis, of course, and clinical trials. Um, one day we were on the phone, uh, Heather and I were talking, and she's like, oh my god, it'd take a fucking miracle. Like, I mean, like, a miracle miracle, like a miracle from Lourdes. Okay, so, for those of you who aren't Catholic... Lourdes, France is a super holy place for Roman Catholics uh, because in the mid-19th century, the Virgin Mary appeared to a teenage girl there, Bernadette Subaru, uh, now St. Bernadette. Like from Greece, I was the finest dancer at St. Bernadette. That's um, the one line that Tony's date has at the prom. Uh, and after that, uh, there were many confirmed or alleged, who, depending on who you're talking to, miracles. And that is why uh, it became a pilgrimage uh, location for millions of very devout Catholics. Millions of very devout Catholics and apparently now us. When we started to plan the trip and talk to our friends about it, they're like, what the hell is this? Are you guys being ironic? Are you even really Catholic? And I was at one point really, really Catholic. I was a fucking nun. But that was a long time ago, long time previous, and I was a, a pretty different person. But you take your miracle cure where you can find it. Like, if somebody had said, okay, Heather will be okay if you guys 
swim naked in a vat of whale feces. She'll be fine. Or if you, I don't know, carve butt plugs out of ginger and wear them while singing the national anthem at a Mets game. Yeah, we would have been willing to give that a try as well. Now you might want be wondering uh, in this conversation why this was still on the phone? Like, why didn't I move to be with Heather? And the truth is, is that I wanted to. I wanted to move to be with her. Um, I mean, partly for her, right? So that I could help her out. But also for me. Can you imagine what it would be like to be so far away from somebody you love and only be able to talk to them on the phone? How helpless you would feel? But Heather was really in a vulnerable space and she had had some kind of shitty partners before. So she wasn't sure that I would stick through sickness and in through health. Plus, she said, it was a rule. Dying people do not start new relationships. I'd misplaced my, you know, dying mistress and overenthusiastic boy handbook, so I just had to kind of smile and agree. So we agreed that we were looking for a miracle cure, and that is how we ended up in Lourdes, France. And our first act was to participate in a evening procession surrounded by lots of people holding hands with candles walking along towards the grotto and we were trying to say the, whole the Hail Mary in French. Uh, now you have to get the visual here, right? Um, Heather was like a burlesque diva. There was a rumor in San Francisco, and then, remember, this is San Francisco we're talking about, that she peed glitter. And she would never even say that wasn't true. She would just say like, oh, well, gives another meaning to the word more, uh, golden showers, doesn't it? And uh, she was dressed up like the way she would dress up, which means she had on not one, not two, but three feather boas. And then there was me looking pretty much like this, you know, like a combination Dennis the Menace and Mrs. Hathaway from Beverly Hillbillies, uh, surrounded by all of Europe's most faithful Catholics. So the way you get your miracle at Lourdes uh, is that you dunk yourself in the pool that formed at the spring where the first apparition happened. And so that was the only thing on our agenda the next day. And I walked, Heather, to the building where volunteers helped you get into the 50 degree pool. She didn't want me to come in, so there was kind of this moment that was a little awkward where I was like, well, um, good, good luck. And then I went and laid down on the yard in front and played Spot the Nun. So after what seemed like a really, really long time, I felt a drop of water on my face and I looked up and it was Heather and she was towering over me and she was shaking and it looked like she had been crying. Oh, my stomach fell. I was like, oh shit, that, that was not a positive sign. And she said, Jesus Christ, I didn't even have any fucking towels. And I was like, well, how do you, how do you feel? She said, the same, no miracle, the same, but really fucking colder. It was like every time we got bad news, it felt terrible. So she took my hand, and the mistress and the boy walked back to the hotel. When we got back to the hotel, she sent me to get something to eat. Now, that was easier said than done, because she at that time was eating a almost a vegan diet, and we were in rural France. So after a kind of a protracted struggle, I came back with the only non-meat, 
non-dairy thing I could find was a medium-sized bag of salt and vinegar potato chips. And I brought it in and I said, I'm sorry, I didn't. And she said, just shut up, sit down, set the table. I'm hungry, we're gonna eat. So I set the table, I got out a bowl and dumped the salt and vinegar potato chips in it. And we sat down and we both kind of glared at each other over the bowl of chips. And I took one and started to eat it. And I was like, so um, this trip really sucks. And she started to laugh, uh, which made me feel a little bit better. And she goes, oh yeah, it totally sucks ass. The next day, we went to Mass in French, of course. Now, here's a little tip for you, make this applicable to your life. Uh, if you are historically and emotionally connected to a religion that also drives you bananas politically, go to a service in a language you don't speak. Mm -hmm. So you'll have like the emotional soothing of the ritual, but you won't get annoyed by what they're saying because you don't understand it got to the point of the consecration. Now it's important to understand the point of the consecration, that is the most holy part of the Mass, right? It's the part where people believe that the priest actually changes the bread and the wine into the actual, actual, actual body and blood of Jesus. It's the most holy time. And so you kneel for that. And as we were kneeling, I got a look out of my eye, side of my eye of Heather's socks. They were socks that I had given her the previous Christmas for a present and they had pictures of cartoon devils on them. So I pointed to her socks and she started, and we started giggling with silent giggles, shaking, in a way that you can only do when you're in a situation where you're really, 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 really not supposed to laugh. So after a minute, we kind of, you know, composed ourselves a little bit and she whispered in my ear, you can move. And I thought she meant I could move over in the pew and. I couldn't because there wasn't any room. So I tried to make like a little, I can't do that motion. And then she whispered again, louder this time. No, you can move to be with me. And then I went from giggling to silent sobbing because I was felt so much joy and also such a huge feeling of relief. So uh, I moved to be with Heather. And we lived in an apartment that was a converted Hare Krishna temple. Not very converted. Uh, it was a beautiful yellow color, the stage in the front where Heather put her bed. Of course, a burlesque queen would have a bed on a stage. Uh, and we hosted a huge Halloween party and her grandma and her sisters at Christmas. And when Heather died, it seemed like half of all the queers on the West Coast had joined us in the house. So, Heather and I, from the time that trip came until she died, we had a year together. So maybe that was our miracle. But also, as cynical, radical, agnostic queers, we knew that we had tried everything we could. I mean, every fucking thing we could. And to me, as time went on, that in itself was its own kind of profound healing. Thank you. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh.
sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, brothers, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Come on, brothers, let's go down, down in the river to pray. This is Risk. This is Alison Krauss behind me now. And we just heard from Kelly Dunham. You can find her on Instagram at Kelly Dunham, but I highly recommend you go to YouTube and look her up at Kelly Dunham RN Comic. She does these um, stop motion animations of her stories that are absolutely ridiculous. I want to give a little shout out to three new members over at Patreon, Maru, Major, and Mary. (laughs) Three M's there. Uh, We always give a little shout out if someone is donating $25 or more per month. So thank you so much, Maru, Major, and Mary. This week's bonus content, I'm going to do a little Patreon check-in where I will talk about probably the inauguration and or anything else that happens around it or maybe something devastating that happened in my love life or whatever (laughs) i'm gonna make a check-in on inauguration day so that will be the bonus content this week there's always bonus stories going up or check-ins interviews with storytellers or staff members lots of wonderful stuff there And it is hugely needed, your support over at patreon.com slash risk. And uh, if you just want to make a one-time donation, you can find us at paypal.me slash risk show. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
Our final story for this week's episode is from one of the last live shows that we did at the theater named Caveat in New York City before the pandemic hit. This is Brian Berlin, who has his own podcast that you can find at lovehurtspodcast.com. You can find Brian himself at brianberlin.com. Brian with a Y. Here he is now, Brian Berlin, with a story we call Peeping Tom. Uh, Five years ago, when I was 25, I moved to New York, and I thought it was going to be great for dating. And it was not that. I I was going on these online dates that were just so mediocre and they just felt more like job interviews than dates. And I was just feeling no spark when I would meet these people in person. And then I matched with Laura. And Laura, right away, there was something about her profile. It just had this like effortlessly funny uh, profile to her. She was very cute and we matched and exchanged numbers. And The first weekend we started texting, it was Halloween weekend. And so uh, she asked me, oh, what are you going to be for Halloween? And I was at this party in my costume and I hesitated to reply to her because I had a costume that I liked, but it was sort of like weird to send to somebody I hadn't met yet because I had this t-shirt and I had uh, glued a bunch of uh, Halloween marshmallow peeps to it. And then I had a pair of binoculars and a mustache, and I was a peeping Tom. (laughs) And I was very proud of this, like, pun costume, but I was like, ah, this person's never met me. They might not understand this. They might delete my number. So I literally sent her this photo being like, I'm sorry if you delete my number. Like, no hard feelings. And she thought it was really funny, and I was like, okay, great. And then she sent me her costume, and she was sexy Forrest Gump. Which uh, she just had like a the tan jacket, blue pot plaid shirt, a Forrest Gump a box of chocolates, and then just fishnet stockings. So it truly was like true to the sexy Forrest Gump, uh, and I was really into that. And we hadn't met yet, and I'm already like starting to fantasize this life with Laura, and we're making these logistics to hang out. And you know, she's already like creative, she's funny, and as we're making these logistics to hang out, we find out we're a ten minute walk from each other which in New York City feels like a miracle. Like, the fact that I don't have to get on a subway to go on a date with somebody, after going on all these bad dates across the city, I was like, oh my God, thank you so much. But I'm still nervous, because I don't know if this spark we're feeling over these texts and stuff is going to translate to in-person. So I, I show up at this bar, and I'm in the back, and I get there early, and I'm just nervously sitting there. And uh, Laura, she walks in, and she says hi, and we hug And the first thing she says to me is, I'm sorry you had such a bad day, but I got you something to help. And I'm really confused. And then she pulls out a uh, Rice Krispie treat from Starbucks. And earlier that day we were texting and I was going on about like my my go-to snack in the middle of the afternoon is a Rice Krispie treat from Starbucks. Uh, They call them marshmallow dream bars there. They're my favorite thing. I look forward to it most days. And they were out at Starbucks. And I was like complaining to her about this. And she went to another Starbucks and got one for me and brought it to this date. And so we hadn't even had this conversation and I'm fantasizing this future we're gonna have together. (laughs) And I'm somebody who does that a lot. Like when I was four years old, my mom, she picked me up from the first day of preschool and she said, hey, how was your first day? 
And the first words out of my mouth were, Mom, I met a girl named Kelly Connolly, and we're going to get married. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure we had just, like, shared a snack together, and that's where my mind went. So I guess, like, snacks is the way to my heart, and Laura had given me this Rice Krispie treat, and we have this first date, and it's great, but honestly, like, I'm not paying attention to the date so much because I'm already starting to play out our future in my mind, and I'm just seeing, like, oh, we're going to write a comedy show together, and she's going to star in it, and I'm going to direct and edit it, and maybe we'll, like, tour as musicians, even though she's a much better musician than I, so maybe I'll manage her, and we'll go on tour across the country, and... Even smaller things like just going away and checking out a bunch of breweries over a weekend or spending holidays together. I'm, I'm looking at all this stuff in my brain and seeing it play out in our future that even though we've only had this one date, and we do keep having dates and it's going well. Every date is getting better than the last date. And we are starting to plan a future together. You know, like she uh, decides she's going to teach me how to play the mandolin, which is not something you could do in, like, one date. So that's a future of, like, this is going to have to happen over a period of time. And we start uh, coming up with a list of TV shows that we want to watch together. And again, all this stuff is feeling like, oh, this is something. But uh, Thanksgiving weekend, so almost a month, a little less than a month later, I get an email from Laura, and it just starts, hey, Brian, you're so great, which is why this was so hard to write. And I know I don't have to read the rest of the email to know what it's going to say, but I can't stop myself from reading it because I have to know. And basically, she had just gotten out of a long-term relationship, and she was just new to the dating world, and she was dating a few other people, and she had had a spark with somebody that she was deciding to pursue with them. And I'm reading this over and over, and I, I, it's hard for my brain to process it. Because up until that point, it felt like we were two people running in a field together. And then that email made it her vanish from that fantasy, and I was just alone in this field of not love anymore. <laughs> and I'm reading it over and over, and I'm trying to understand what's going on. Because I get, I get the X, and I get that, and where you'd be in the world, but I'm having a hard time understanding the spark with somebody else because of how powerful that spark felt between us. And I just can't comprehend there was somebody else that she felt the spark with more. And now I'm questioning like everything. Like, did she actually want to watch these TV shows together? Was she going to teach me the mandolin? Did she even dress up as sexy Forrest Gump? I know I saw the picture, but like, who was that? It wasn't the person that I thought I was dating. And I'm questioning the email now. I'm like, this seems made up. Is this, this seems like a lot of excuses just thrown at once to just get out of this thing. And I realized that I have a way to fact check this in my head because there's this hard drive that I have. And on our second or third date, um, Laura's hard drive crashed on her laptop and she lost all her data. And, and I was like, hey, I'm good with computers. I might be able to fix this stuff. And so she gave me her hard drive and I was able to restore it all bring on a new hard drive on her laptop, but I still had everything because it had happened so quickly. I hadn't erased anything. And so I plugged this hard drive into my computer. And I go to her iPhone photo backup. And in my head, I'm like, I'm going to find answers. I'm in like detective mode. I'm putting the strings on the board. And I go back and I'm just like, it was there a boyfriend? Like, was there an ex? And I'm going through these photos. And about three months before we met, I find a letter that she's taken a photo of that she's written to this guy, basically saying that she still loved him and that could they give it another shot. And so there was an ex, and she was telling the truth. 
And I probably should have stopped there, but then I kind of just kept going back through these photos, and I was seeing this relationship she was having with this guy. And initially, it kind of felt that way when you're just like on a friend of a friend's Instagram page, and all of a sudden, you're just like, oh, I wonder what their life is like. And you're just scrolling through their photos, and you've never met this person before. And I'm scrolling through these photos, and I'm seeing like birthdays and holidays and weekend trips that these two people are spending together. And they're all the fantasies that I thought Laura and I would have together, but I'm not in those pictures, and I'm realizing I'm never going to have those photos with her. And as I'm scrolling through these photos, I hit a photo of her and her underwear on the bed. And I'm like, oh, this is not somebody's public Instagram profile. Like, this is somebody's private phone photos. And I can't stop myself. For some reason, I just keep scrolling, and there's a series of five or six photos, and then there's one of her topless. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm a peeping Tom right now. <laughs> and I feel terrible, and I'm just like, oh, my God. And I have this thought of, like, is this a time when I'm supposed to sad masturbate? I don't know if this is something I'm supposed to do. And I'm like, no, 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 this is not the way to do that. If you're going to do that, you can't do that with this. And I delete the whole hard drive. And I just try to kind of move on with my life, you know, I was so obsessed with this thing and I didn't know how to kind of get myself out of it and I had fallen into the spiral that made me do something I had never done before. And I'm trying to get past this thing. Like the months are going by, but I'm still kind of fantasizing about running into Laura on the street and we'd run into each other in the neighborhood and she'd be like, hey, and I'd be like, hey, and you know, I ended up leaving that guy and I feel this thing for you and I think we should give it another shot. And I knew that wasn't going to happen, but it kept rolling in my head. And I eventually stopped thinking about that fantasy and tried to move on with my life. But I wasn't going out a lot, and I was kind of just staying in, and I wasn't being very social. And I had a friend who was having a birthday party, and I was like, okay, I should go. I, I haven't seen her in a while. So I go to this bar where the party's at. I get there right when it starts, because I can leave early if I do that, because that's how I am in social situations. But I'm there so early that I don't know anybody at this party and my friend's like talking to her boyfriend and I'm just like in the corner drinking a beer. And this guy comes up to me and he's like, oh, do you also not know anybody at this party? And he says it in such like a charming, just like ease way. Like I'm at ease when he says this phrase to me because it's, he's opening up to me and I'm like able to just like not be this nervous guy in the corner anymore. And he starts talking to me and he's just this like effortlessly funny guy again where I'm like, oh man, this guy's like, really nice, he's asking me about my life, I'm asking about him, he does comedy, and we're talking more and more, and he's even got this like really chiseled jawline, and he's got scruff the way that I wish that I can have scruff. <laughs> I'm like, man, I haven't like felt a connection with somebody really since Laura, and now I'm like feeling it with this guy, and at one point he goes and buys chicken wings and offers me some chicken wings, and I'm like, man, he knows the way to my heart. <laughs> And I'm developing this real man crush on this guy. And we find out we live in the same neighborhood. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to ask this guy if he wants to hang out sometime. Because I need a friend. And so I asked him to hang out. And he's like, yeah, we should hang out in the neighborhood sometime. And then he gets a text from his girlfriend. And he's like, oh, I got to go meet my girlfriend. We're going to another party. She's outside. And I'm like, OK. And I walk towards the front of the bar with him. I'm going to get another drink. And he walks out the bar and goes to greet his girlfriend. And it's Laura. Oh my and they kiss 
and there's a bunch of people in front of me, but I'm like looking around and I'm trying to see, and they're kissing, and it's her. And then they walk off, and I see them for two seconds, and they're holding hands as they walk off. And I'm doing the math in my head because he was mentioning a girlfriend when we were talking, and the amount of time they're dating, and I'm like, oh my god, he's the guy that she picked over me. But it made so much sense to me because he was like funnier than I was, better looking than I was, more confident than I was. He was like Brian 2.0. And I was doing the math and he even lived a five minute walk from her apartment. And also he wasn't this creep who was like living in his brain and breaking into people's hard drives and doing all this crazy stuff, right? And, And I tried to like stop living in this fantasy world after that. And I even didn't realize this but I stopped dressing up for Halloween after that I haven't dressed up for Halloween since and part of me just kind of needed to not live in my head anymore and my current relationship it's funny I our second date we kind of put out all our relationship traumas and what we are looking for in a relationship and it turns out it's a lot easier and healthier to have a relationship that you're experiencing with the person instead of experiencing it in your head Uh, thank you If I am lost for a day, try to find me But if I don't come back, then I won't look behind me All of the things that I thought were so easy Just got harder and harder each day December is darkest, in June there's the light This empty bedroom won't make anything right While out on the landing A friend I forgot to send home Who waits up for me all through the night Calendar girl who's in love with the world Stay alive In love with the world, stay alive. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Stars Behind Me Now. Brian Berlin said he was obsessed with this particular album. When he was going through those events that he described in his story, you can find Brian at brianberlin.com. Folks, the next Risk live stream is Friday, February 12th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Tickets are at risk-show.com slash tour. Don't forget, I do these cameo videos. They're custom, personalized videos for me, for you, or someone you love. You can order one and have me tell a little story or wish someone a happy birthday, sing a song, give sincere advice. That's all at cameo.com slash thekevinallison. Another fun way to interact with me is on subtext at joinsubtext.com slash risk show. I text out thoughts, feelings about behind the scenes stuff, thoughts on the stories, reactions to current events, and you can text me back and only I'll see your text back and I can text you back. That's at joinsubtext.com slash risk show 
first two weeks are free, then you can decide if you want it. <laughs> and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're at Risk Show. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. And on Instagram, you can check out the Story Studio NYC. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. So yeah, I just really want to deeply thank you all and really let you know that your support and your listening and you're telling people about the show and you're sending in Patreon donations and you're buying tickets to the live shows and you're listening and you're telling people about the show and you're sending in Patreon donations and you're buying tickets to the live shows and you're listening and you're telling people about the show and you're sending in Patreon donations and you're buying tickets to the live shows and you're listening and you're telling people about the show and you're sending in Patreon donations and you're buying tickets to the live shows and you're listening and you're telling people about the show and you're sending in Patreon donations and you're buying tickets to the live shows and you're listening and you're telling people about the show and you're sending in patreon donations and you're buying tickets to the live shows and you're listening and you're telling people about the show and you're sending in patreon donations and you're buying tickets to the live shows and you're listening and you're telling people about the show and you're sending in patreon donations and you're buying tickets to the live shows and you're listening and you're telling people about the show and you're sending in patreon donations and you're buying tickets to the live shows and you're listening and you're telling people about the show and you're sending in patreon donations and you're buying tickets to live shows and you're listening and you're telling people about the show and you're sending in Patreon donations and you're buying tickets to live shows and you're listening.